Episode 252 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with Dr. Greg Schroer. Radio team, welcome along to episode 252 of the Bevan James I'll Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of exercise. Today, I've got an interview with a man by the name of Dr. Greg Schroer. It's actually a really interesting discussion. He's basically like a coach, a doctor, he's, he's a pretty clever guy. Um, but it was just a really cool discussion around overcoming some of the bigger things in life. And I think you're going to get a lot from that. So that's really cool. I'm going to check that on pretty soon. Uh, before we do, I just want to, I did an interview today. Um, I'm doing a project with one of New Zealand's biggest websites called stuff.co.nz. And as a part of it, they're doing lots of interviews with me. And I was doing an interview with a lady who's writing the article. And I've met her a couple times. And in her interviews, I've got this feeling that she's quite hard on herself. So, um, you know what I mean, quite hard on herself, and, and hard on herself in a way which maybe sometimes can work against her, and at the end of the discussion, we spoke for like 40 minutes, and at the end of the discussion, I kind of said, I get the feeling, you know, is it fair for me to say that sometimes you're too hard on yourself, and she said, no, I definitely am, and then she said, but I like it, I like being hard on myself, and we're having this discussion around, is being hard on yourself good for you, and it was really, so I kind of gave her, gave her some advice at the end of it, and, and it seemed that she really aligned to it, so I thought I'd just share it with you guys here, so interestingly, being hard on yourself is, can be valuable, and this is what this reporter was saying, that, you know, sometimes being hard on herself is really good, because it motivates her, she was saying when she was younger, she was a gymnast, and she had like a Russian gym instructor, and they were hard on her, and she loved it, like she was really, really thrived under that hard coaching environment, and at the same time, now this isn't confirmed by her, but I got the feeling at times her being hard on herself also sometimes limited her because it could lead to inaction or it could create a negative experience for her. And and I and I kind of said to her, I think maybe one thing you want to think about is identifying when being hard on yourself is a valuable thing in your life, and when being hard on yourself is actually a limiting thing in your life. Now, in the areas where you're being hard on yourself and it's it's a good thing, well, obviously you want to use that as a wise kind of tool in your toolbox. But in the areas where you're being hard on yourself and it's a limiting thing, so it might be you're being hard on yourself so you don't train because you feel crap about yourself, or it might be that you don't get to enjoy an experience because you're being hard on yourself even if you've done well, or many of the other reasons that, being hard on yourself can be a limit. So first of all, for her to identify when she is being hard on herself, that comes to a limiting experience. And from there, what we want to think about is, if that's a limiting experience, what's a better approach approach to deal with this moment? What's a better strategy to have in place where being hard on myself is actually a limiter for me or creates a bad experience for me? Now, I'm going to be honest, I don't have the answers to this based on this person I was talking to, and I haven't put a huge amount of thought in it since doing this interview because it was literally like two hours ago. But I, I think it was a really cool discussion to have with this person, and maybe um, if she interviews me again, I'll go a bit deeper into this because I think it's a really 
interesting discussion. Now, if you're listening to this right now, and you know you are that person who's hard on yourself, but hard on yourself at times, which is actually a limiter for you, that comes at a cost that doesn't actually help you progress or feel about yourself in the ways you want to feel about yourself, maybe you need to work on this. But then you might be like the reporter and say, well, actually being hard on myself is actually a good thing in my life because it means at times I pull my socks up and do the work. And I think it's a really good idea to actually define the two different times. So to define the times where, when am I hard on myself in a valuable way? But also, when am I hard on myself in a way which is actually not good for me? And obviously the work we want you to do right now is in the areas where it limits you, What's a better approach? So let's say you beat yourself up and it leads to you not doing exercise because you feel bad about yourself. Well, that's a limiting time to be hard on yourself. So at those times, what's a better approach that you can explore to help you actually get to the actions and behaviors that will get you to the place that you want to be within yourself? Like, I don't think being hard on yourself is a bad thing. As this lady said, at times it's variable. I know as a fitness instructor, sometimes I'm really hard on my class. Like sometimes I remember like people come up to me and they'll say, oh, Angry Bevan was out today. And I'm generally a really happy kind of fun, I'm a happy fun guy. <laughs> but, but you get what I mean? Like my disposition in life is kind of positive and fun. But sometimes as an instructor, I've got to pull my class up and I've got to be hard on them. And what's really interesting is often after that moment, they respond in a really powerful way. So there's times when we do need to kind of slap ourselves in the face and say, come on, sharpen up, you need to be hard or you need to lift your game. But there are also times when it works against us. And if you're listening to this right now, and you know that there's aspects of yourself where you're hard on yourself, which actually doesn't lead to the actions, which does restrict you, which does make you feel bad about yourself. How do you let go of that area? And what's a better strategy or what strategies can I explore to help me be successful? And when we think of the measure, the measure is, do I end up doing the thing? So let's just use the exercise example again. It might be that you, you, you're meant to be doing some running and being hard on yourself doesn't actually lead to you actually doing your running. So you try a new strategy, and I don't know, let's say the strategy is, you know, you get some friends around and you make it a fun running session. Well, then you end up doing the running. So you've done the thing. The thing was the running. And often when we're being hard on ourselves, it's like you need to do this thing to advance. And so in the areas where you're limited because you're being hard on yourself, what's a better strategy or what's some new strategies that I can practice and explore that will get me to the point where I'm doing the thing that I want to do? And ideally, as we progress down this pathway, is you to identify at these moments in my life, this is a, being hard on myself is a really good tool. At these moments in my life, this tool over here is a much better tool to approach it. And both of these tools get me doing the things that will help me feel I'm progressing in my life. So I just kind of want to share that with you because, well, A, it's just kind of in my mind, uh, and B, I just, you know, I think it's a really interesting thing because I think there's a lot of people out there who are hard on themselves to the point which is actually, sometimes actually doesn't never lead to action and it just becomes this big beat-up session. So just something interesting to think about. Anyway, we're going to get into an interview really soon with Greg right now, but before we do, I want to say a massive thank you to the patrons of the show. Um... 
You guys are really, really important to the show. Your support means so much. The financial backing means so much as well. So I want to say a massive thank you. If you become a patron, you get a cool Bevan James Isle Show nickname. And these are some of the people who are patrons. We've got Sabrina, the number one pick. We've got Ruth on Fire Newstub. We've got George Monopoly Man Steel and Street, sorry. And we've got Dean, the cool cube cubie. If you want to become a patron of the show, go to bevanjamesisles.com. Click on podcast, click on support me, go through the payment process, and that way you can support me and what I do each, every fortnight on this show. Anyway, here is my interview right now. Rightio, Tim, I'm pretty excited to have on the show a man by the name of Dr. Greg. Now, his name is spelt pretty full on, but he said it's shrewer. Have I got it right? <laughs> yes, you do. It's perfect. Because I basically just told you what he told me. So, <laughs> hey, welcome along to the show. I suppose a, a good place to start is maybe just give us a bit, bit of a background upon yourself. Okay, cool. So, firstly, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate being here. Um, my background. So, well, it depends on how far we want to go. But if day we one. look at uh, <laughs> day one. So, day one, I was born. Um, no. So, I originally come from South Africa. Um, moved to Australia when I was around 15 years old. Um, went through a lot of bullying when I was a little kid um, and probably going into primary and a little bit more into high school. Um, came, to, came to Sydney. I finished school here, went to uni and studied to be a chiro originally. <clears throat> and then through my journey as a chiropractor, I got involved in more of the mindset side of what chiropractors do because we have a, a particular philosophy that we, I guess, subscribe to looking at what's called the triangle of health. So looking at your structure, your chemistry, and then as well, your emotions. So there are techniques within chiropractic that factor all of those pieces in. So during my master's year, I got exposed to a technique called neuroemotional technique or NET. It's a type of applied kinesiology practice. And it just opened up my eyes to how the mind and our emotions and our stresses can influence our physiology. And then fast forward to 2011. So that was around 2006, 2011. I'm already practicing and I get exposed to um, one of my mentors, his name's Dr. John Demartini. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him before. He's a human behavioral specialist, been doing that for about oh, probably four, almost five decades. Oh, wow. And originally used to be a chiro, but now has been doing human behavioral studies and education and teaching and writing books and all that kind of stuff for close to 50 years and got exposed to his work. And all it did was gave me a lot of language around what I was already doing and it was the start of uh, my coaching journey. So that's where I started uh, delving into helping people in a bigger way and a bit more of an in-depth way. Um, And a few other mentors have kind of come since then who've kind of fit into that, uh, I guess, approach or process that I have with working with people. But uh, yeah, so started with bullying, went to Cairo school, met him, helped me completely resolve the whole bullying situation that I'd been through as a kid, helped me understand it and understand what happened and it wasn't what I thought it was. And and a lot of the work that I do now with clients really is about helping them break free of similar types of limitations that are holding them back from fulfilling their potential. So can I ask really where I'm at? 
What was two two questions I have is moving from South Africa to Australia at 15 is a really interesting age for that to happen. And was that when the bullying kind of started or was it that happened previous to that or earlier to that? So the bullying definitely started earlier than that. So it probably started as early as, oh gosh, probably preschool, but not to the same level, not to the same level of awareness, I guess. Yep. Uh, it was more. I was more conscious of it in primary school, um, and then coming to Australia from South Africa at that particular point was very difficult. Um, especially coming from, I came from a very big school, okay. and then moved to a very small school. And everyone who had who was part of that school, a lot of those families had migrated together a lot earlier. Okay. So a lot of those kids knew each other. They grew up together. And so I kind of came in to this environment, not really knowing anybody and also being a little bit on the outside as a 15, 16 year old young yeah. teenager. Um, so there were some challenges with that in high school, but not in the same way. It was a bit different. Um, the way I was kind of bullied or at least how I perceived I was bullied when I was, when I was uh, in primary school was quite different. And, because it's, it's it's a really discussion around this bullying thing because, you know, a lot of parents go through it with their children. Uh, you know, we hear about the social media aspect nowadays, like I've got a daughter, but she's 25 and she kind of just missed that. Um, but, you know, like this kind of cyberbullying and, and stuff like that. And I know we'll probably go into different topics today, but at that time, did your world know that you felt you were being bullied? And if so, what advice would they give you to how to deal with that? So yes, my mum was very aware uh, that I was going through that. And so was my dad, obviously, because I think I, I don't know exactly how they knew. I, I'm assuming I probably spoke to them about it. I can't quite recall. Yeah. Um, so my parents had very different approaches to dealing with bullying. My dad uh, came from parents who were almost killed in the Holocaust. Oh, he was geez. in an orphanage majority of his childhood because his mother just couldn't take care of um, all the kids and so he like learned to fight for survival like physically actually fight for survival you you punched him and so yeah like he would literally because he he was also small so the only way he could um i guess have position in the world was to defend himself physically that was the only way because he didn't really have any other strategies so he he would teach me go in, punch the kid, you know, do something like that. And in, that's not necessarily in my nature to do yeah. so. I, I can see there's a value in that in some situations, but not necessarily as like the first, you know, avenue to travel down. And my mom would often say to me, you know, don't worry about it. Just walk away from them. Or if you need to run away, run away to the void. So her whole approach was avoid. Mm. My dad's approach was to fight. And both of yeah. them, um, were just wanting to protect me. So they were using whatever strategies they felt were best for me um, to help me get through it. <laughs> um, so I mostly followed my mom's strategy because I kind of more resonated with my uh, my temperament. I was really sensitive um, young kid. Uh, and although on one level, that kind of, it did benefit me to some degree because I avoided getting into actual fist fights. The downside of that strategy was it didn't really um, give me the ability to 
stand up myself and feel powerful enough to do so. Yeah. And I can see what my dad was trying to get me to do as much as I can see what my mom was trying to get me to do at the time. Mm. Both strategies weren't the most effective strategy, but they were only giving me what they knew. Mm. Um, the the intent was good. Um, but yes, yeah, but the outcome wasn't necessarily either one wasn't in line with your character or B one was actually not very empowering for you. Yes. And they, I mean, like I said, at the end of the day, all they were doing is just trying to do the best they knew how mm. in a very, in a very tricky and tough situation. Now, you know, years later, learning more about this dynamic and the intricacies of it and the physics behind it and the universal laws behind it and everything that was going on under the scenes that I just would never have known as a young teenager or a young kid. Um, now I'm, I, I totally understand what happened and I can see why I needed it to happen. Um, so, and can you tell us what and, that is? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> I originally I thought when I was a kid, my ears stuck out a lot more than they do now. I had them pinned back when okay. I came to Australia. Um, so initially I thought people were picking on me because of my parents, because of my ears, because my ears stuck out. And, and commonly kids will perceive that they're being bullied either for the way they speak or the way they look or their culture or whatever it might be. There's all these unconscious things going on under the surface that in that moment, we're just not aware of. So for me, I was, I came from a, I didn't come from like a very, um, wealthy family but i came from a family of two parents that just loved me and they cared about me and they were just you know they i just i didn't have to want for anything emotionally uh, in relation to them and oftentimes you'll find the person on the other side of the equation the bully if we're going to give them the label um it comes from a background that's quite different to that actually where in their perception, they're not emotionally supported or their parents aren't available for them because they're very busy or there's other challenges going on. So at at the heart of who they are, they're seeking attention, they're seeking validation, they're seeking something. And for me, I was getting all this praise being who I was as a little kid. I was being praised. And oftentimes when I was getting bullied, my parents would say, you know, you're better than them. And so that would just inflate my ego. And so I was passively going into school with this massive ego thinking I was better than everybody else. Yeah. Okay. On the other side of the equation, because I was being protected a lot from all this opposition, all this challenge, because my parents, particularly my mom was just trying to protect me. um, All that did was it didn't equip me with the tools to stand up for myself. Mm -hmm. So these kids were trying to unconsciously, not consciously, they had no awareness of this, but unconsciously what they were aiming to try and help me do is to become more humble and recognize that I wasn't better than anyone. Um, I just had a different experience to them, but I wasn't better than them. Mm -hmm. And two, to help me stand up for myself and to grow up and learn how to defend myself and learn how to speak up and learn how to communicate effectively and all these things that I just didn't have the tools and strategies for. So it took a while before I figured out just through a lot of my own personal growth work and um, learning through particularly this one mentor of mine who I met in 2011, I just I figured it out. I was like, okay, this is what happened. And if I tracked every moment in my life where I was challenged, it was because of those reasons. It wasn't because I had big ears. It was because I was cocky. I had opinions. I thought I was better than everybody else at the time. 
And I also wasn't confident enough or strong enough to handle conflict and opposition because I didn't know how. I didn't, I didn't really get taught how to do that very, very, very well. So eventually once I learned how to do that, which only really happened in my 30s, um, now I'm in a position where I have no issue with the dynamic. I see there's a value in it because it's really just challenge trying to help each human being grow on both sides of the equation. Um, it's how it's managed that's the problem from my perspective. But I, I mean, I could be wrong. That's just my interpretation of it based on what I know. Um, but I think the way it's managed globally at the moment and has been for a very long time is not necessarily solving the problem. In fact, it's often perpetuated and it makes it worse. Um, so that's just how I, I... I have a couple of questions around this, but like... If you your if you could go back and be the parent of yourself in that situation, because a lot of parents are dealing with this, um, of course. How would you guide your kid based on what you know now? Based on what I know now, well, I have two kids now, so <laughs> okay. um, my son, who's in preschool, he's four years old. He's had these challenges at school, and one of the things that I would often recommend to parents, and this is what I would probably do if. I was a parent to myself back then. Mm. The one thing that's really, really important that parents are afraid of, some, not all, but some parents, are afraid of challenging their kids and disciplining their kids and setting boundaries on their kids and being the nice parent and the mean parent at the yeah. same time. Yeah. So often, oftentimes one parent will want to be more the kind one and don't want to push them, don't want to upset them, don't want to be seen as the the one that does all the wrong thing, don't want to be perceived as a bad parent. Mm. And then there's the other parent who doesn't mind setting the boundaries. And then often children will perceive that parent as the stricter one, the one that sets the boundaries, the one that's not always nice, the one that's, you know, we've got to be afraid of that one. And so I often recommend playing both sides of who we are because children need to experience what that looks like because in the real world, that's what it actually looks like. You're meeting people who are kind and cruel, nice and mean, positive and negative, good and good and bad, if we're going to use the polarities. You're meeting people who are balanced individuals who express both sides of themselves. So the more that, uh, for in our case, in, in terms of my son and what I would do with myself, the more we show him our balanced sides of ourselves, so we're nice when we need to be, we're kind when we need to be, we're supportive, we're encouraging, we love him desperately, but we also challenge him. And we don't just let him get away with everything and we have rules in our home and we enforce them even if he doesn't like it. And we, there's, excuse me, there's certain consequences that we put in place um, to help him learn to regulate and to help him understand um, cause and effect. So that's what we do now. And oftentimes what that can help kids do when they're in the social world, they kind of almost anticipating the challenge is going to be there. They're almost like ready for it. And so when it comes in, they have, they're almost better equipped to handle it and to manage what comes at them. And they're less likely energetically and unconsciously to attract opposition, to help them counterbalance all this extra support they're getting at home. Because mm. oftentimes when kids get a lot of extra support at home, so it's kind of out of balance that bleeds into the social dynamic. And then the social dynamic just takes over where the family dynamic hasn't stepped in enough. Mm. So if there's way too much support at home, which gives a kid an imbalanced perspective of where the world works, they go into the social dynamic thinking that it's always going to be supportive, not challenging. And then they deal with challenge and they just don't know how to cope. Yeah. 
So I always recommend to do it at home to give that kid as much opposition, as much challenge. The parents who, who play the nice role to also play the mean role. Parents play the mean role to play the nice role to do mm. both sides, give them a, a balanced overview and a balanced perspective. And that's what I would teach my myself if, was, you know, if I was a parent growing up as a, a young little kid. And that's certainly what we teach our kids now. Dude, um, when you, you, know, you said you were bullied as a child, but it seems like you didn't really kind of figure out the processing through it till you kind of your 30s. Did you continue to kind of get bullied as an adult? Yes, just in very different ways. So being a very strong-willed person and a highly opinionated person, um, that didn't necessarily bode well for me in various situations. So I had to be humbled in a number of different situations because of that. And also because I was bullied, which is often the case, not always for everybody, but I just wanted people to like me. Mm-hmm. So I landed up becoming more of a people pleaser. Okay. So I would be accommodating. I'd do things for everybody. i help everyone. And all that did inside is it made me feel angry over time, resentful over time. And it led to me becoming quite narcissistic at one stage, probably around the time I was 30 when things started to change. And um, that was the moment where I really kind of just kind of decided that I just didn't want to be living in that kind of reality in that, in that same way anymore. And also to feel all this anger inside and all this resentment and to feel like I had to be so selfish just to get what I needed. Um, And so I went on a massive journey over, probably about three years um, to really help clear clear that out. Most of it happened in the first year, but there were some things that needed to happen two or three years later. I do have another question around this. Um, now that you're in a better place, do you find that behavior towards you has disappeared or, or at least lessened a lot? Because like, my world treats me extremely well. You know, like my world treats me like, I can't remember the last time someone was mean to me. Um, I, now, I treat my world really well, but I also don't let people give me shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, I'll stand up for myself. And not, 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 I'm not the guy who's going to punch someone, but I'll pull someone up saying, I, I'm not, I don't let people treat me like this. You know, like, and so, mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and I, I don't really have to have those experiences, but I'm kind of curious, once you found a better place, did you find those behaviors towards you kind of disappeared because maybe your world subconsciously learned, I can't treat this person like this? So the answer is no, they didn't disappear, but my response to them changed. Okay. So the more, because nature is always, nature is always going to give balance. doesn't matter Mm. how, how uh, you evolve, what level you're at, how, um, what stage of your life you're at. Nature's always going to give you the opposites. So what I found is the more I took ownership of all of that stuff that I was really in ownership of my power, my strength, my confidence, my ability to express myself, all these things that I just hadn't owned fully. Um, and I started speaking more like doing things like this as an example. Yeah. I would naturally attract criticism uh, because everything that I say, not everyone's going to agree with. Yeah. Some people will go, oh, no, that's rubbish. No, no, you can't treat kids like that. Yeah. No, bullies are bad. You've got to protect the kids who get bullied. It's like there'll be people who will who might be listening to this right now and go, no, I don't agree with this guy. And there'll be people who um, will listen to this and may see my perspective and may go, that makes sense. That's logical to me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to get support and challenge. So, you know, 
praise and reprimand no matter which way I go. The difference now is I don't really notice it anymore. Um, and if it does happen, my reaction to it or my response to it is quite neutral because I can't control people's interpretation of me being me. Mm. So I'm at a point where I'm so comfortable being who I am that I know just knowing me being who I am and being very transparent and confident in that, that there are going to be people who are not going to feel good about it. Mm. They're going to think I'm arrogant or cocky or whatever else they're going to feel. Some people will, and some people will go, he's self-assured and confident Mm. and Mm. he knows what he's talking about. So I just, my reaction to it's not like it was, Mm. it's still there and I'm aware of it from time to time, but I'm, so emotionally detached from that now um, because I've neutralized my response to it such a lot that I just, I kind of, I don't really pay any attention. So it's a much healthier perspective on how to deal with the situation. Yeah, I've, I, definitely. I mean, I have like, if, so, if let's say for example, um, that happened and someone was trying to control me in some way, yeah. my approach to that now is I'm just, I'm, I'll respond I will stand up for myself. I'll speak mm-hmm. back. I'll serve myself if I need to, um, which oftentimes will counterbalance the other side because yeah. there needs to be a balance of energy in order for it yeah. to neutralize. So sometimes that will happen. Um, and the only way I'm able to do that is because of all the work that I've done. So I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything that I've gone through. I I would, I mean, most people wouldn't say this, but I would definitely go through it all over again because all the things that I've learned about and all the knowledge that I have now is what helps me help the people that I've been working with for 17 years, Mm. more so and more in depth and more intently for the last 11, but definitely over the last 17, it's just shaped the way I serve others. So I would never, I would never want to take it away. I'd rather just help people understand what to do differently with this and how to navigate through this territory in a, in a more balanced and more neutral way. So, so, you know, you obviously work kind of one-on-one with people. What are some of the common things people come to you with? I don't know it's quite a broad question, but some of the common things people come to you with where they're, they're trying to progress forward. So most commonly, like there's a range of different areas of life that people have challenged with, but just most commonly, common, let me try that again. It's most commonly because they're holding themselves back from moving forward into that area. So if let's say, for example, they're wanting to get into a relationship, but it's not happening, or they're wanting to progress forward with a career and it's not happening, or they're wanting to fulfill their purpose. They're wanting to go beyond just building a career, working for somebody else and want to create their own thing. Uh, We look at all these limitations, all these things that they um, are subscribing to still, usually from their childhood, which is most common for most of us that are limiting their ability to actually step into that space. So my big thing, uh, which was my challenge growing up, because I used to keep quite quiet. My big thing is teaching people how to speak up and how to communicate, how to set very strong and effective boundaries, how to prioritize their needs to the same extent that they prioritize everybody else's. So there's balance going in and out. So the input and output in their nervous system and their brain is um, consistent. Uh, and ultimately the main goal really is to help them fulfill potential in any one of those areas, whichever one the kind of, um, uh, they're kind of stuck within, but ultimately is to help them break through those hurdles to speak up usually 
to set boundaries, to strong, be strong and effective in the way they stand up for who they are. Um, and to just communicate whatever it is that's most important to them and to not be afraid of prioritizing their own needs as much as they might prioritize everybody else's. Because these are all the wounds that I had. So I figured out how to overcome them. So I usually I'm helping people overcome those as well. And I imagine there's a broad range of skills in those areas, you know, like in, um, some people are probably good in some areas and some bad in others, and some people may be terrible in all of them. Uh, so when you're looking to develop people, choose choose an area and choose how you would tend to look to develop the person. Again, I know it's quite a broad question, but you know, let's say someone who is not very good at speaking up, how do you develop so they become comfortable and, and be able to sit in that place within themselves? Well, the question would be, so that if someone had trouble speaking up for themselves, the key would be, the key thing would be identifying why. So where did that start? What's the reason? And usually if people have trouble speaking up for themselves, it's most commonly because they have a fear of something's going to happen if they do that. Mm. And usually for most of us, because a lot of our learned behaviors and conditioning and all our beliefs and everything happen in our most formative years before birth and five or seven years old. So a lot of that stuff is there from when they're really, really young. And it's commonly going to uh, be related to a parent, um, usually a father, sometimes a mother just depending. And it's usually to do with parents who might be strict, who have enforced certain parameters around how they expect children to behave and how they ex expect children to be. And so as a result of that, kids tend to hold themselves back and then don't speak up. And because they don't want to get into trouble, they don't want to deal with the consequence, they don't want to be rejected, they don't want to be abandoned. So the unconscious brain is strategically, on the, and the, yeah, the unconscious brain, because that's your fight flight part of the brain, is unconsciously and strategically trying to help that person not experience pain. Because their brain's worked out, if I speak up, mm. that equals pain. So if I keep silent, there's no pain. But the truth of the matter is, is when we keep quiet, there's still pain. Just the pain's inside, mm. not on the outside anymore because we're creating pain for ourselves rather than others inflicting pain upon us. So usually we identify where that began for that person and who it, who it was related to. And there's a step-by-step -step process, process that I take people through. There's different ways that I do it. I can sometimes use kinesiology if I'm seeing people face-to-face -face, or if it's on online like this, then I'll have my coaching process that I'll use. Uh, and we work through a, a series of steps to help them resolve that issue in their history to calm down the emotional charge, the emotional reaction in their brain and their body, and to calm down that fight, flight, freeze response around the action. And then often what I get um, clients to do um, after we've done a bit of work is we then go test that out in the field. Yep. So then they've got to go and actually test it to mm -hmm. see how they feel, to see what their, what their response is like to see if there's any anxiety around it, any nervousness around it. And then we meet back again. And then we work through that next layer to ensure that they can continue doing so without that sensation showing up. Mm. So the key is just identifying when it began. And we all have a beginning point to a lot of the stuff that we deal with. It's just about uh, investigating that. And once we know what that is, there's just a step-by-step -step process to break through that. And so there's this kind of identification, then there's this kind of understanding of the emotional journey that people go through with this, and then trying to help them kind of deflate that emotion or at least know how to manage it better, and then to build a set of experiences that teach them that they can be fine in those environments moving forward. 
Yeah, correct. Ideally, the goal is to regulate people. The more regulated we are and the more we're looking at situations without seeing them as either negative or positive, they're just neutral moments in time, neutral experiences that have helped us grow, helped us learn, taught us X, Y, and Z. Um, It's easier then to manage those moments in our current reality because we're neutral about it. We don't have a charge one way or the other. Um, And also the brain needs evidence. So, you know, if the brain only has evidence that me speaking up me standing up for myself equals pain, even though that might've happened maybe five times in our life, what the brain does is it blows that out of proportion. And we believe, even though it's not true, we believe that it happens every time we speak up, Mm. which is not the case actually. Mm. Because when I've worked with clients and we actually, you know, really investigate that, they can only think of maybe a handful, maybe two handful, two handfuls of experiences where that may have happened in like 30 or 40 years of their life. Yeah. So but, but it massively influences their, their, their overall perspective of it. 100% because that's their emotional reality, which is governing how they live their life, which is true for all of us. So the more we can calm down that emotional reality response uh, and the, e- the easier it is for then people to see that, oh, actually, no, it didn't happen every single moment that I spoke up for myself. It happened maybe like, five times when I was a kid and two times when I was a teenager and once in my twenties and another time in my thirties, but actually it hasn't happened as much as I thought. And helping people recognize that sometimes actually calms them down, makes it feel more comfortable to do it because they realize, mm. Oh no, it doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. That's the first thing. Um, but also then giving them evidence to go out into the real world. Now, once you calm down some of that charge inside of the brain and the body to go and see whether that's the truth. Now that we have some conscious awareness, is it going to happen 100% of the time or is it going to happen maybe 80 to 90% of the time, which is most common? Mm. And once we've got this new evidence that I can actually speak up and it leads to praise or it leads to acknowledgement or it leads to support, then the brain starts to myelinate a new pathway that says speaking up doesn't just equal pain, it equals both. Mm. It equals challenge. And it equals support, which means it's a neutral experience no matter which way you look at it. Yeah. One thing that's really interesting around this, you know, one of the, one of the traits you talked about was this kind of, um, you know, prioritizing myself in line with the other people in my life. You know, and, and you hear a lot of people say, I'm a people pleaser. And you said that yourself early on, you know, that I'm a people pleaser to the detriment of myself. And there's kind of levels of this, isn't there? You know, we see the mother who puts their family first all the time, but at a massive cost to their health, both physically and mentally. Um, but then we mm-hmm. also see people in work situations where they want to say something, but they don't want to rock the card. You know, this kind of pleasing thing is, I think, is, is something that a lot of people feel holds them back from what's important in their life. And so I know it's, it's a very similar process. I imagine that, again, you figure out the base, you figure out the emotions, you figure out experiences they need to have. But what would you say to people who are listening right now who, you know, d- you know, they're kind of nodding their head going, you know what, I am the pleaser, and that definitely restricts the version of myself that I want to be? So that's, again, <laughs> um, similar, similar, I'll say it in a similar way. So for me, just to, I'll kind of go, to, I'll speak to that first, um, just to give it a bit of context. 
So for me, I knew I wanted to please others because I was bullied as a kid. So I knew people pleasing would get me liked and would get me attention, but it also meant that I was constantly sacrificing what I wanted or my own needs to satisfy everybody else. And so what it landed up um, leading me to become at that moment was more narcissistic to balance out all that altruism to kind of keep, to find the balance. Eventually I found my balance between selfish and selfless so i can kind of operate between those points when i when i need to uh, but the really the main goal here is to be comfortable to be selfish and to own that part of ourselves mm. we have this as, as a um uh as a population we or as a people as a species we don't like the idea of the word selfish we believe that that word is more negative than positive but the, in truth it actually is neither it's just it is a word. Is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and selfish really implies that you're choosing just to care about you. You're just mm. choosing you. It doesn't mean you're choosing you and excluding other people. It just means you're choosing you. And so oftentimes what I work on with people who are in that space is to help them learn the value of being selfish and learn the value of being self-centered and learn the value of prioritizing their own needs, making their own choices for themselves themselves so ideally it's about helping them take ownership of that so oftentimes they might judge others usually usually people who who people please tend to have a charge around that word and they usually judge others who they believe are being selfish Mm. and often the reason why we judge them is because that's a part of us we haven't owned yet and we don't want to keep looking at it in the mirror so we're going to judge them like crazy to try and get rid of them out of our field of view so we don't have to constantly face the fact that that's part of who we are that we that would be wise to take ownership of. So commonly, I'd get people to look for when and where in their life they've been selfish. They've been self-centered. They only thought about themselves. And we look for all the different memories, when and where it happened, what was going on, who was there to witness it to make them accountable. And when you're listing at least 20 to 50 of those, eventually you can't deny the fact that that's part of who you are. And taking ownership is actually a very important piece because once you own that that's part of yourself, you can't actually deny it any longer because there's so much evidence we just stacked up to make it to, to actually show you that it's true. The facts are there. And then we look at <clears throat> two things. One, when if, if let's say, for example, we're judging our own selfishness, we would look at the benefits to ourselves when we've been that way. How has it actually benefited us when we've been selfish? What did it give us? How did we gain? How did we grow? What actions did we take in response to whatever it was? And what were the benefits of those? And so on and so on. Until we can like really uncover the deep underlying reasons for why we made those choices and decisions. So we can find gratitude in the decisions and choices that we make rather than try and dismiss those choices and say they're bad. Mm. Then the next, and that usually resolves any fear or judgment that we have within ourselves or maybe from others about being selfish. The second thing, there's a couple, but these are probably the main ones. The second thing would be to see how when we've chosen to be selfish towards people we love, because often then we feel guilt and shame about it, which is the reason why we don't want to own it mostly. It's because we feel guilty about the possibility that it might cause other people discomfort or pain. So we look at all the memories that we listed, all the times when we've been selfish and ask, how has it benefited whoever was on the receiving end of that? How did it benefit them? Mm. What did they do? Did they stand up for themselves? Mm. Did they prioritize themselves more? 
Did they take action? Did they disconnect? And was that important for them to disconnect from you? Did that help them move in a direction they needed to go in? And what was the benefit of all of that, et cetera, et cetera? We can keep going with each of those people. And what that exercise is designed to do once you kind of reach a point of balance is to help dissolve any shame or any guilt or anything like that associated with any action you take that could ultimately lead to somebody else in their perception having a negative response to what you're saying or doing. Mm. Does it mm. make sense? Yeah, it does really. The goal you here know, is I, to regulate. Yeah, like I think of the example of, you know, I've got a running business and we get beginner runners and often it's the first time mothers will put themselves first. And they, they say it's good for the family because the family actually learned to do some of the roles the mother did. And, and the mother thought that the family was dependent on her and if she didn't do them, the, the kind of family would fall over. And, and it doesn't. The family steps up and the kids have to yeah. learn to cook and stuff. And so there's, yeah, there's, there's value in me being selfish for the people around me, which allows me to see that it's good for both of us. Correct. Ultimately, yeah. when we're giving too much to other people, thinking that that's the right thing to do, which kind of um, ties to what you were just saying, it's quite disabling for people. Mm, it actually yeah. stops them from stepping into their power. It stops yeah. them from being resourceful. It stops them from figuring stuff out. Well, it's it's, it's so, the leader. Um, it's the leader who thinks that no one does it as good as me. You know what I mean? It's, you know, lots of small business owners, their their business is limited because they think no one does it as good as me. Um, but also their people are limited because they don't give the opportunity for their people to develop themselves. Correct. And I say that a lot to business owners. I'm like, uh, often I say to uh, often I say to them, if you were like honestly the best at every aspect of the business, your business would be thriving, mm. but you're not. <laughs> you're only the best at what you value the most. Yeah. And everything else, there are other people who are the best at those things. Yeah. So when you delegate your lower priorities, your not so best things to people that have high priorities, that helps your business move forward because that leaves you the opportunity and the space to focus on what's most high, most highly important to you, most valuable to you, and everything else gets delegated out. Yeah. But a lot of business owners don't see the value in that. Yeah. They see there's a costing that they're going to incur to hire someone. Yeah. But it's costing them more not to actually delegate it out. Yeah. And also they won't do it as good as me, or you know, and, you know, oh, yeah. and you know, and, it, and it, yeah, it really limits your own business, but it actually limits the opportunity for people around you to develop themselves. Correct. Yeah, yeah. When you say, you know, obviously you work for people and you get them to different points or, or you help them progress forward. For those who are the most successful for the long term, are there character traits that they share? Oh, that's a good question. Now you're stretching my brain here for 17 <laughs> years to think of everybody. Um, yes. There is something that's consistent to a lot of them. And one is they're incredibly determined. They don't give up. They're not they're not yeah. the type of people who are just gonna give up when the going gets tough. They'll they'll find a way through. Whether it's hiring a coach, whether it's hiring a therapist, whether it's reading self-help books, whether it's listening to podcasts, they are they just can see beyond the problem somewhere in their mind. Yeah. And despite all the challenge and opposition that they're faced with, they're just willing to just keep going despite mm. that fact. I'm 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 it's a bit similar to that. Yeah. So like you literally can throw shit at me, excuse my language, over and 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 over again. And I'll just keep getting back up. Like I'll be challenged by it initially. Mm. 
but I'll just get back up because I'm a, pro- I'm a natural problem solver. I want to find okay. the answer. So people also tend to be uh, truth seekers. They're looking for solutions constantly. They want to understand everything. Um, they're usually very committed. Oftentimes have been put in positions where they're have been actually left to their own devices as kids. So they're actually quite independent and self-sufficient um, and quite resourceful. Uh, don't necessarily, don't necessarily always recognize that about themselves, but um, definitely have those character traits in spades. Mm. And really, for those people, it's just about helping them own all of that, all those parts of themselves. So they can like recognize them consciously, and then help them with strategy. Mm. Most of the time, it's just a, a lack of strategy, a lack of plan, a lack of action, a lack of knowing what step to take. Mm. Um, and oftentimes, when they know what to do, what step to take, when they've got the method, they just fly. They go with it. Um, that's usually probably what I find that's pretty consistent amongst those people that have done well mm. or continuing to do well. And for those who don't do well, do they share a trait? And, and, no, it might just be the opposite, but I'm just kind of curious. Is there, is there a different answer there? Um, yeah, so the people who don't get the results that they could mm. usually they're usually afraid of the conflict, they're afraid of the confrontation, they're afraid to look deeper, they're afraid yeah, to kind okay. of investigate, yeah. Um, because it's hard, you yeah. know, it's you know, I, I'm sure if you've been through aspects of this through your life, it's not easy dealing with adversity and dealing with challenge and like choosing actively to walk in that direction, knowing that you're going to experience pain, Mm. knowing that it's going to be uncomfortable, knowing it's not going to be like, uh, you know, a hit of sugar, knowing it's not going to be amazing. It takes a specific type of person at a particular point in their journey. And some, some it's earlier, some it's later to be able to be willing enough to do something like that. Mm. The people who tend to not get the results as best as they could uh, which I don't often attract those people anymore. I used to more when I was younger. Um, but they're often generally people who are just afraid. They're afraid of just digging deep because yeah. digging deep means uncovering everything and bringing it all out. And, mm-hmm. You know, we like banding, uh, band-aiding over our pain. We don't really like dealing with our pain as a species. And that's even a growth thing as well, but isn't it? You know, when you think of... Um, any growth endeavor being uncomfortable is going to be a part of that journey. And and unfortunately for some people, they're uncomfortable moments where they stop. Um, so they never yes. really experience the growth, you know, like um, there's always going to be a limit if you can't handle, or if you can't learn to enjoy the uncomfortable bit. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Growth, um, you know, growth yeah. happens at the border of both. It happens at the yeah. border of support and challenge. You need both yeah. to grow. Yeah. Right. If you think of kids, you've got a daughter, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So when she was a baby and she was growing teeth, it would have been painful for her. And you Mm. might have had to deal with that, you know, some sleepless nights and runny noses and fevers while while the teeth were coming through. It's painful. There's a pain that comes with growth, but there's also this amazing thing that happens with that growth is that as soon as the teeth come out, now they can chew food, which they couldn't do before. Yeah. They can now take in more nutrients that they weren't able to. Yeah. So there's this 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 positive and negative exchange that's constantly happening in synchronicity throughout every aspect of life. But as human beings, unfortunately, and I, this again, this is my observation growing up and what I've seen just through my professional experience, human beings generally aren't taught to see that. 
Mm. Like we're taught that in physics, in physics, yes, there's like, you know, opposites and they have to balance each other out to neutralize, you know, to neutralize a charge. But we're made up of the same stuff. We're made up of negative and positive ions. Like we are physics um, and emotions are chemical fluctuations in the body. So positive and negative ions going up and down all the time. And the more we can regulate that stuff, the more neutral we can be. And it's just about learning how to do that. But as a species, we never got taught how to do that really very well. Really, there's another discussion here, isn't there? You know, what should we prioritize teaching our children? Um, I always love to ask people who who help others is what's the bit that you you need to work on now? Oh, good question. Because well, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we we you know, we're very lucky in that people look to us for advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you get put on a pedestal. Um, yes, know, absolutely. You know, and, and it's not realistic and it's not true. And and so I always think it's nice to, you know, as an expert to kind of just share something ourselves. Of course. So, yes, despite my, despite the perception that I have all my stuff worked out, I certainly do not. Yeah. Um, so my biggest challenges for me, which I'm constantly working on because I didn't get taught this as a kid, um, is around business and wealth. Okay. So those are the two areas that I probably have had the most difficulty developing and working through. In what way? Um, so I never got taught around anything around wealth, creation and wealth building, yeah. investing, saving, anything, strategy around wealth at all. My dad had no clue how to do any of that. He just never learned how himself. Yeah. Yeah. So I never learned through my own growth. Um, and I was surrounded by a lot of kids who had way more money than we did. We were like low to middle-class socioeconomic group. So we didn't have what everybody else had. So I always felt like I was left out. I was missing out. And I landed up getting to a lot of debt in my 20s, trying to be like everybody else, realized there's a different way forward. So business and, and finance has really kind of come hand in hand. They go They go together. So I had to learn how to run a business. I had to learn the nuances of running a business, the systems that make a business function, obviously staffing and delegation and, um, oh gosh, (laughs) everything and anything you can think about in relation to a business, but also in terms of wealth creation and certain strategies and what's what's a a better long-term strategy versus a better short-term strategy, when to... um, you know, take bigger risks, when not to take bigger risks, et cetera. So I had to, le- I had to learn a lot around that. Um, and because I have, I'm like a big picture thinker. So I'm always thinking way beyond where I currently am. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see, like I have a very big vision for something that I'm working on and I can see it happening inside my head. It's like it's in the world already into the degree that I want it to be in, but uh, for me, I find getting from where I am at this moment to that moment has been one of my greatest challenges. It's I'm definitely doing a lot of work now, actually, to uh, overcome that or transcend that obstacle that I've had to contend with in my life because I now have the business and financial knowledge that I need, uh, but now it's more about how do I get from where I am in this moment in my career to this moment over here that's in my head? Okay. What do I need to put in place? What steps do I need to take? 
Um, how do I need to leverage myself? How do I need to use my skill set in a different way so I can get to that point quicker? Uh, for me, I'm I'm a I'm a gen I'm generally I'm an impatient human being because I because I think big, yeah. and so I'm not the type of person who can focus on the details. So for me, that's been my greatest obstacle, greatest challenge. I spend a lot of time on that, and I'm doing that actually quite a lot at the moment, learning a lot about myself through that process. But I would say that's probably my biggest issue. Nice. Uh, if people want to follow you, work with you. Uh, where, where do they go? So probably the best way to get in contact uh, with me is through Instagram. So um, my Instagram, you'll probably have it in the show notes, I suspect. Yeah. It's Dr. Greg Schrewer. Um, and you can contact me directly through there. I'm I'm pretty much on there throughout the day, checking in, answering questions, connecting with people. Um, you can go to my website, which is gregschrewer.com. Um, you can contact me directly through there. Um, I still do some work uh, within a chiropractor doing kinesiology and some coaching work in there. So if anyone is local to Sydney and wants to do a bit more of that work, they can always contact me. And through the website, we'll kind of guide them to that practice. Uh, but if people are wanting to do more coaching-based work, which is what I'm doing as well outside of um, um, the practice, they can just contact me through Instagram. It's probably the best way to get in contact and touch That's with right. me. And I'll put links to that, uh, both of those pages on the show notes for the uh, show. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Really cool discussion. Some really awesome insights there. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So this today's show done and dusted. Hopefully you enjoyed the interview with Greg. I, I, yeah, some really interesting insight in there, isn't there? And, and I like this idea of... Um, understanding, figuring out the emotions, then kind of working forward. It's, it's, it's quite a cool concept in approaching these methods. So if you want to get in contact with Craig, I'll put a link to his Instagram and his website in the show notes for here. If you're in your podcast, you can do that, or you can just go to my website, bevanjamesisles.com. Uh, I, I will get a show up around New Year's, so they expect a show over New Year's, and then I'll be back in the new year. I want to say thank you for all your support throughout the year, it's really cool, I get lots of emails from you guys thanking me for the show, and even some people I see in the real world say they really enjoy my podcast. Actually, I got a lovely email, I was at my teaching class this morning, I'm really lucky in life, I was, I was, I was teaching a class, and there's a lovely lady called Kerry, Kerry's this beautiful woman, really positive soul, and um, she said she's gotten back into fitness this year, she enjoys my work and what I do is a big part of what, what I, you know, her success. And um, how, cool, a, how cool is it that she said that to me? B, how great did that make me feel? And how cool is it I get to live a life to be that person? And I get a lot of feedback on this podcast from people who are saying they really enjoy the show and it's really helping them in some way, shape or form. So thank you for another year of this podcast. I really appreciate it. If you want to support me in what I do, you can become a patron of the show. Go to bevanjamesos.com. You can buy my book, Passion About Exercise. You can get the course. I have put the price up now. It is over $1,000 now. It's still amazing value. Um, but you want to get my course, it's passionaboutexercise.com. And put reviews on podcatchers. But that's pretty much me. There will be a show before the end of the year. So I'm not going to say for the end of the year. But yeah, so you will hear me before the end of 2022. Anyway, keep being you. Rock on. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time.